0: If you remember last week, we um, began looking at the the first part of of John chapter three, and in looking at this this particular section of scripture, we we saw what's taking place there with this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is someone who was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a leader that was there amongst those that were in Israel, the religious people. And Nicodemus, as he's there, he comes and says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Clearly, you've come from God, because how else can anybody do what you're doing? And Jesus says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Unless you're born again, there's no chance, there's no possibility of you seeing the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responds, how is that possible? How can I be born again? Do I enter my mother's womb a second time? How is it possible? And Jesus goes from there to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then goes on from there to say, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born in the Spirit. You must be regenerated. You must be born again. You must be made alive by that work of the Holy Spirit that comes in and just radically changes us, takes hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh, causes eyes that are blind able to see. It's God that does that. It's God that reveals our sin to us and shows us our need for a Savior. And it's God that breathes life into dead people who are still dead in their sins and trespasses. It is the Holy Spirit who does that and He does that as He wishes. It tells us here. Just like the wind. You don't know where it comes from and where it goes. But you see the results of it. And likewise for us, we see the results of Him, the Holy Spirit, in our lives. From there, the Lord continues. and He brings us to a place of as He's explaining these things to Nicodemus where He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He takes Nicodemus back to, the, back to the book of Numbers and tells him... Do you remember when there was the serpents that were there? There in the book of Numbers, there's the serpents. There's judgment that's coming upon God's people as they're complaining and complaining and complaining... And God sends fiery serpents that bite the people, and as the people are bitten, they die and they 're dying all over the place. You can just imagine the scene: fiery serpents everywhere and they 're biting everybody, and people are dying and they finally plead to Moses, "Please make it so these serpents go away we 'll pray, we'll repent we 'll do whatever it takes, make the serpents go away and, and God God comes to them and tells Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Something that just doesn't make sense. I had shared last week that being in, in, in Africa, we talked about what if you got bit by a black mamba? What would we do? And I asked Dr. Jumentine, who was the last person to speak here, what would you do, Dr. Juventine? And he said, get a shovel, because you're going to dig your grave. And that was the encouraging words from Pastor Juventine. <laughs> so I made it my aim not to get bit by a black mamba when I'm there in Africa, but looking at it and saying, what do you do? There's no anti-venom, there's no way to cut the wound and to take out the poison. There is nothing that you can do when you're bitten by one of these fiery serpents. The only thing that you could do is, God says, take a, make a serpent. Makes it out of bronze. Puts it there on the pole. There in the middle of the camp. It says, anybody that is bitten by a serpent, look at the, the serpent on the pole. Just Look at it you look and you think this doesn't make sense at all why look at a serpent on a pole and the reason is is that it's pointing us to Christ who is to come it tells us in verse 14 and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up you see those people had to look at that serpent you got bitten it didn't matter how many times you got bit you 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 could have had 25 snakes bite you It didn't matter if it was 25 snakes. It didn't matter if it was one snake. It didn't matter whether you were a little kid or if you were someone who was a full-grown adult. You were going to die, no matter what, if you got bitten by any one of these snakes. But for those that came and just looked at the serpent on that pole, they were healed, completely healed. Coming into the middle of camp and knowing that they were going to die. Knowing that their life was going to be taken. That the serpent had bit them. And just like everybody else who had died, they were going to die. But if they just look at the serpent, this bronze serpent on that pole, they would live. The reason why God would give that as far as this is the remedy for for you if this snake bites you. Is because he's pointing to Christ. It takes faith to be able to look at a serpent on a pole and to look at it and say, okay, if God just says, if I look at it, if I believe that he could heal me by looking at that serpent on that pole, I'll be healed. And so there's these people there and they're looking at it, knowing, okay, this is how you're healed. You just look at it. It's not works, it's not doing enough good things. It's not remedies. It's not your own ability to figure things out. It's trusting in a Savior. It's trusting in a God who is able to heal and looking at that serpent there on the pole. And it points us right to Christ. We see Christ there at Calvary, hanging upon the cross. The serpent is there representing the sin. And we see in Scripture that Christ became sin for us. He hung there on the cross Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's lifted up. And it tells us in this particular text that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's the gospel. Whoever believes in him Whoever looks and sees their life and sees that they've been bitten by these snakes and they are sinners and they're going to die and there's no way around it. They've all sinned. They all have fallen short of the glory of God. They look at their lives and they see a life of, of lies, a life of, of all manners of sin, lust, cheating, stealing, whatever it is. Failing to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Failing to to love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus gives us that as the first and the second commandment, there is not a person on this earth that is an unbeliever who will say, I love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength, and I love everybody the same way that I'd want to be loved. I love my neighbor as myself. And so across the board, everybody has been bitten. And yet those who look, those who look upon Christ as he hangs there, on the cross, and they look at him and they say, the only hope of salvation for me is to believe in him. To believe that Jesus died on the cross. He took my sins upon himself, and he gives me his righteousness. It's not about my works. It's not about whether I've done enough good. It's not about whether I've gone to church enough, or given enough, or made a pilgrimage, or done whatever it is. It is about looking to our Savior, who is Christ, who just as that bronze serpent was placed on that pole and raised there in the middle of the camp, likewise Christ was crucified for us, he became sin for us, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so from there we come to probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture, one in which i venture to say everybody here has memorized, and that is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a verse in which most of you would say like oh yeah I know that verse. We're going to do a whole sermon on that verse. I know that verse. But this verse is precious to us as believers, isn't it? You look in Martin Luther called John 3:16 the gospel in miniature. It is the gospel in miniature. It is the gospel summarized here in one particular verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Begins by saying, for God. The gospel begins with God. The crucifixion was not something that was an afterthought. Christ wasn't one who came and was born there in that manger and lived this life, and then all of a sudden, it's they're going to crucify him? What do we do about this? It wasn't something in which all of a sudden this was happening, but God was unaware of it happening. You see in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, Surely He's borne our griefs and He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Think of some of the things that come forth in this verse. You look at this in hundreds of years beforehand, Isaiah is prophesying of the crucifixion which is to come before crucifixion had ever been invented or known of, had never been performed and he's going through and just saying this is what's going to happen. He is going to bear our griefs. He's going to carry our sorrows. He's going to be stricken. He's going to be smitten by God. God is going to do it. He's going to be wounded for our transgressions. He's going to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is going to be upon Him. And by His stripes, we are going to be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone away. We've all turned. Everyone to His own way. But the Lord, God, has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. For God so loved the world. For God had a plan from the very beginning. It's just radical when you look at it in the scripture and you see from the very beginning, God God creates Adam and Eve and he places a tree in the garden. says, don't eat of this tree. The day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. They eat of the tree and they die spiritually. They're hiding in the garden. God says, why are you hiding? We're naked. Who told you that you were naked? Takes the fig leaves off Takes an animal, kills it. Takes the skins of the animal makes tunics for him. The first picture of the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. All of the sacrifices, Cain and Abel. Cain gives a grain offering. Abel gives an animal sacrifice. God accepts Abel's but doesn't accept Cain's because there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. You look at the whole sacrificial system. The shedding of blood for the remission of sins. You look at... The Passover and the blood that's placed on the doorpost. And God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. The reason why is because there's the shedding of blood for the remission remission of sin. A lamb without spot or blemish or any such thing. A perfect lamb had to be killed so there could be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And you go all throughout Scripture and you look and you see that God has a plan. God has a plan that he is going to redeem a people. It is not by chance that they fell into sin. It wasn't that God was taken off guard. There was a plan for God to so love the world that he would give his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so when it begins, it is all initiated by God. Acts 2.23, Christ being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. You put him to death, but this was according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was all a part of God's plan. In fact, Revelation 13.8 tells us that he is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Radical when you think about that. Before God ever created the world, before God ever created anything, he knew that Christ would die. He knew that he would give his Son... He knew that he would create such a display to the entire universe as far as this is who man is and this is what man did and this is who your God is and this is what he has done for you. He's given you his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So that you and I for millions upon millions upon billions and trillions of years for all eternity we will look and say who is a God like our God? We didn't do anything to deserve eternity in heaven. And yet he took my sins upon himself. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted. And by his stripes I'm healed. By his blood that was shed I've been Redeemed, I have been purchased. It's because of him that he's done it to where we're going to be there. And like we're told in the book of Revelation, we will be saying all glory and all honor belongs to you. You are the lamb that was slain. But to think before the foundation of the world, before God created anything, there was a plan for God to show the greatness of his love for us. And that comes to the next section in our verse. For God so loved the world He so loved the world. Don't know what you think about when you think of love. You might look and say, "Like I'm so in love with this person." Which, if you're married, I hope you are. You love your kids. I love my kids. I love them. You love your church. You look around this room and you you love, you love people here, don't you? And you look and you see this love that God has that takes our love and we find it to be just infinitely greater than our love. I love my wife. I, I love this young lady here but if you know her she is incredibly lovable it's not hard to love my wife it's just not like she's lovable she's sweet to me she desires to bless me A great mom she's, It's beautiful she's lovable But there's a difference when you start looking at us. You see, the greatness of God's love for us is is magnified when you consider the object of his love. You see, he wasn't obligated to save us. He saved us because he loved us. He didn't look at us and say... I need you so badly, therefore I will love you. You start looking at God's love for us and who, who were we? Who, who were we that he loved? For God so loved the world. Who is it that he is loving? We were in total rebellion to his sovereignty. When, when God said you can eat of all of the trees of the garden, just don't eat of this one tree, what does man do? I can eat of all the trees of the garden. Why don't you want me to eat that one tree? I mean, I was fine until you said, don't eat this one tree. Now I want to eat that one tree. Clearly, you're holding something back from me. Clearly, I want to rebel against your sovereignty. I want whatever that is that is on that tree. They can have all the trees of the garden, but they go for the one tree and they rebel. Rebellion against his sovereignty. You go all throughout Scripture, there is rebellion against his sovereignty. Go all throughout Scripture. You look from beginning to end, whether it be go forth and multiply, and you see them build the Tower of Babel. You look at it in it the days of Noah, and everybody does whatever is right in their own eyes. They're just doing whatever they desire to do. They have no regard for God's law. They have no regard for what God commands. You look at all throughout Scripture. You see the commandments that God gives towards his people. And what do they do? They rebel and they rebel and they make idols for themselves and they carve images for themselves and they take the bronze serpent that was there and placed upon the pole and they start worshiping it for 200 years. Until it has to be destroyed later on. Because they worship the thing that they're supposed to look at. Instead they make it into a god. And you look at it all throughout history, they do that. All throughout history, they're just going through and it's just rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. Rebellion against his sovereignty. Rebellion against whatever he says. And they do whatever is right in their own eyes. You can see the same thing today. Rebellion all around us. All around us. Children, obey your parents. Does that happen all the time? No. No. You look at it and it just goes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. This is what marriage is. And what happens with marriage? Marriage is just being destroyed in our society right now. You look at it and and, and you shall not steal. What what do you find people steal all the time? My soccer practice just the other day, some girl had her iPhone 5, put it in her bag. What happened? One of these kids stole it. What they didn't realize is I was going to find their address. They're not smart thieves. And when I do find them tomorrow, that player will no longer be playing for me. Just got to look it up on the computer. Haven't had time. But thieves, I mean, just look, there's thieves. You look and you find it all the way through. Man is wicked. Don't lust. What do we do? We lust. Don't covet. What do we do? Oh man, I wish I had that guy's car. I wish I had his house. I wish I had his job. I wish I had whatever it is. Don't gossip going to tell you something i probably shouldn't tell you this but you're not going to believe what happened just can't wait to tell people what happened and you just go through and you can take any of god's commandments and you'll find that we as a society fail and fail and fail we're sinners we do whatever's right in our own eyes we despise his law and failed miserably in keeping his law god tells us that we hated him The unbeliever may say, I don't hate him. I don't hate God. Well, God knows your heart. God says you do hate him. God says you hate his holiness and you want to run in the opposite direction of his holiness. God says this and God says, be holy for I'm holy. And man says, I don't want that. I'm going to make God in my own image. That's what God tells us that we did made him in our own image. So to me, to me, God is like, he's just like nature. I worship him when I go to the beach. To me, God's like nature. To me, God is this idol. To me, God is Buddha. To me, God is like this God of Islam in which if I obey these five pillars, I'm okay. To me, God is is such that if if I just build up good karma, if I try not to kill bugs, if I don't eat animals, if I don't do this, if I just try to be a good person, then I can earn some kind of favor of God. To to me, that's what God's like, and that's what people say. Like To me, God's like this. And God just says, you made God in your own image. You made him like animals, like four-footed animals and creeping things. You made God in such a way as far as, okay, I like a God that makes it so I just obey these five things. Or I, I like a God who makes it so that, that everybody gets to go to heaven. And, and, and every, to, me, to me, God would never send anybody to hell. There's no such thing as hell. To me, this is what God is like. And so they go through and they just say, to me, God is like this. And guess what? You don't get to decide who God is. God decides who God is. And God tells us that he's the holy God of the universe that has created all things that can't be a part of sin. And he tells us that he has made hell for those who do not believe believe in him and heaven for those who do believe in him and that he has made for himself his own special people and he gives us the gospel and says whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life and he tells us this is how it is and then he gives us prophecies hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies to say this is going to happen he tells us thousands of years before it happens and then it happens exactly the way that he said and he goes through and just paints redemptive history all the way through to bring us to the place where christ would come and be born in bethlehem Be called a Nazarene. Tells us the details of his life. How he would be crucified. That he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. All of the deeds that he would do. It goes through and gives us details so that we can look. And God tells us that we will have no excuse when we're before him. None. Whatsoever. And so you look at this and it's God saying, "No, you, You were not seeking after me. You hated me. There was none that were righteous, no, not one. I sent you prophets, and you hated them, and you ignored them, and you frequently killed them. I came as a light, and you hated the light because your deeds were evil. You were proud. You frequently forgot about God. And he was just to place the fierceness of his holy wrath upon us. We deserve eternity apart from him total separation from his glory for all eternity because of the depths of our sin. And it was unto such depraved creatures as us that he said, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world. If you have grown up with everybody saying, you are wonderful, you are so beautiful, Good, good job. You got a star. You are incredible. Then maybe you don't see the depths of your sin. Read scripture. God says something radically different. God goes through and just lays it out. You are a sinner in desperate need of grace. And he so loved you. He so loved the world. Incredible love of God. We didn't merit His love. We didn't earn His love. He didn't see a single thing within us that was lovable. Nevertheless, according to His grace, according to His mercy, according to the perfect and everlasting love that dwells within the heart of Almighty God, He loved us. It was us that He chose and called to be a people for Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory. He displayed the greatness of His love by giving us His Son to die on the cross for our sins, he so loved us. In first John four nine it says, and this is the love of God. Or in this the love of God was manifested towards us. That God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love, not that you love him, but that he loved you and sent his son to be the payment for your sin. You want to know what love looks like. Look at Him. Look at God. God is love. In 1 John 4, 19, it says, We love Him because He first loved us. The only reason why you're here this morning and you want to sing praises to Him and and you love Him, you desire to obey Him, you desire to live for Him, is because He loved you first. In Romans 5, 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. When we are still sinners, he so loved us. In Ephesians, Paul says, we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the heights to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of God. John tells us in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And so when we look at John 3, 16, I pray that you would say, For God, a holy and perfect and sovereign God so loved the world and that it would cause our hearts just to be overwhelmed with praise. He so loved the world and we didn't deserve any of it that he gave his only begotten son. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The extent of his love is displayed in a gift the most precious gift that could ever possibly be given, his only begotten son. I have a son, Jonathan. I love that boy. He, He blows me away all the time with just his heart and his kindness, the way he is. I would never want to give him up. Never. I would never say you could take his life so that someone else's life could be saved. I I wouldn't want to do it. I don't know that most of us would say, like, yeah, go ahead, you can have him. You You don't want to give up your son, your child, but I for sure won't want to give them up for an enemy. Someone who hated me. Someone who just spoke horribly of me. Someone who desired to hurt me all the time. To say, like, okay, I'll give you my son. There's no way. In my heart, in my own depraved heart, even as a Christian, I don't want to give my kid up. And yet to think that God so loved the world that he gave the greatest gift, his only begotten son. I don't know that we will be able to comprehend that. In fact, I know that we will not, the greatness of that. The fellowship that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had from all eternity The glory in which they held together, always existing as the triune God there in heaven enjoying their fellowship. I mean the Bible talks about you enter into the joy of the Lord, and to think that he gave his son. Romans eight thirty two, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he gave you his son, won't he also give you all things? Why is Christ the greatest gift? Because he's always existed with the Father. He's God. He's light and in him is no darkness at all. He's God's only begotten son who alone could take on flesh, being fully God and fully man. And at the same time, he could become our mediator. He could be tempted in all things yet without sin. Only Christ could remove our sin. There's no one else that ever could have removed our sin. Only Christ could have. He's the only one that could be the perfect substitute for our sins. He's the only one that could fulfill all righteousness. He's the only one that could always do those things that please the Father. He's the only one that could fulfill all the demands of God's justice as Christ died upon the cross. He's the only one that could take the wrath that you and I deserved upon himself so that we would never have to experience it. You could take the nicest person here in this church. You can take the nicest person here in this world and say, can we take that person and sacrifice that person so the rest of us could live? And God would say, no. It had to be God himself. It had to be the Son of God who would take upon flesh and never sin, although he was attempted in all things that he might fulfill all righteousness. It had to be the perfect lamb without spot or blemish or any such thing. It had to be the one who would be the perfect high priest that could be the one that makes That is the mediator between us and God. It had to be him. He's the greatest gift that anybody could ever have. It's the greatest gift that anybody could ever give. You see it in Genesis 22, verse 2, where God says to Abraham, "'Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, "'and go to the land of Moriah "'and offer him there as a burnt offering.'" On one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then you look at it. What takes place is God takes. Abraham takes up his son Isaac to take his son. His only son whom he loves. And he's going to take him and sacrifice there, him there on that mount. And God at the last, last minute says no. And what does God do? God provides himself a lamb. And you find it on that same mountain. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. That Christ is there. And God gave his son to be the sacrifice, and nobody said stop. Abraham and Isaac was there, written all of those years before, to point that on that same mountain, there would be one that would be slain for us, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The greatest gift. God didn't send his son to serve in the military or go into the mission field. Or to work in a foreign country. I mean, I look at it like, I don't even want to send my kid to like a different state to go to college because they're going to probably marry someone there and want to live there. I think that way, just so you know. I'm, they're six and three. And I'm like, no. We're not going to encourage you to excel. We want you locally at the local community college. <laughs> we're okay with that. You look and you just think like, no. I mean, like, how about this? We pay for you to stay nearby. Do You want to go? Accrue as much debt as you want. But we will pay, and we will give you toys. In my mind, it's like, no, I want to keep them close. The idea of sending my son to the military, even to the mission field, or far away. Like, And yet, God sent his son to be born in a manger, to be tempted in all things, yet fulfill all righteousness. He sent him to be despised and rejected. God sent his son, knowing full and well that he'd be stripped naked and shamed as his enemies would cast lots for his clothing. God sent his son to be scourged and beaten, mocked and reviled, to have his beard plucked out and to be spit upon, to wear a crown of thorns and to be pierced through his hands and his feet. God sent his son to be a curse for us, to become sin for us, to take upon himself the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God as he hung on the cross to bear the sins of the people who hated him. God gave his son that his son might die. Radical. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love of God. You look at him and you say, you want to know what God is like? Look at him. Look at what he has done for you. He gave you his son. He wrote of all of the things that would happen to him upon the cross. His beard being plucked out. Being pierced through his hands, his feet the crucifixion, all of it, because he knew that it was going to happen. He knew that the precious blood of Christ would be shed. And he planned a universe in which that would happen, where he would send his son to display to us the infinite love of Almighty God towards us as sinful people. And he did that. That whosoever believes in him, whosoever looks to him, Just like those that were bit by the serpent are to look towards that bronze serpent there in the middle of camp. Whosoever believes in him. It's not about, have I done enough? You could be three and believe in him. You You could have murdered hundreds of people and believe in him. You could be someone who is the top of your class and brilliant and have gone to the best universities and believe in him. Or you could be the person who has one of the lowest IQs and you can, I'm not going to point to anybody, and believe in him. You can, that was grace, Kelly. Okay, you, you, it doesn't matter how much sin is in your life or what you have done. It doesn't matter whether you've lived your entire life for this world and you are breathing your last breath. It doesn't matter whether you have minutes left to live. Whoever it is, whosoever believes in him, anybody, the offer goes out to all people. Whosoever believes in him will not perish. Will not perish. We would have perished. We would have perished for all eternity in hell. We would have entered blackest darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where We would be outside of the joy of the Lord and outside of His glory for all eternity, experiencing the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God for all eternity. When when those who say there's no such thing as hell, God talks about hell all throughout Scripture. When people say like, oh no, you're just going to cease to exist. No, He does not say that. He says that it is everlasting darkness, everlasting fire. The place where the fire isn't quenched and the worm cannot die. It was what every one of us deserved. And God says that He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish. But what's the result? The biggest transition ever but, 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 have everlasting life. You wouldn't perish, but you'd have everlasting life. By believing in Him, by faith. You see in Scripture. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six, 6. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's by faith, it's by believing in him that you're saved. And so you look at this and God, almighty God, Holy God, creator of all things, who is perfect and without sin and cannot be a part of sin, so loved the world, those of us who are filled with sin and do whatever is right in our own eyes and are dead in our sins and trespasses. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son the greatest gift that anybody could ever be given, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It is glory when you look at John 3.16. It is the gospel in miniature, as Martin Luther said. It is there before us to look and say, this is the greatest news that anybody could ever possibly hear, that it is through faith in Christ that we could be saved. And I encourage you, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, pray to God that he would show mercy upon you today. Pray to God that he would cause your eyes to be opened, that your heart would be softened, that you would look and see that you're in desperate need of a Savior, for the wind blows wherever it wishes. And we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And that is the way the Holy Spirit works. And it can be that you are here for a reason this morning because God, the Holy Spirit, has brought you here to save you on this day. To regenerate you and cause you to be made alive that you might believe in Him and place your hope in Him and trust in Him that you would not perish. That you would not perish, but that you would have eternal, everlasting life. For such is the gospel, and that is why we call it the good news. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to partake in communion together. Let's pray. Lord God, we see you as the one who loves the greatest. You loved to the greatest degree, you loved a world that was full of sin. You gave the greatest act, your one and only Son, the greatest gift. But whosoever would believe in you, greatest simplicity, believe in you, Lord, perfect in all your ways, would not perish. The greatest promise, but the greatest difference. Have eternal life, the greatest possession. God, I pray that on this morning that you would bring anybody who's here that's not a believer to salvation. You are able to do it. You have done it in so many here already. May our hope be in you and may we be people who love the gospel. May we hear John three sixteen, and we just think of God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We love the gospel. We love you. You have displayed yourself to us in such a way that we just, we adore you, Lord. We adore you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.